This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Acclaimed chef, restaurateur, James Beard Award winner, TV personality, and author Marcus Samuelson brought his culinary prowess to the Blackberry Farm Kitchen for our annual Passing the Torch event, benefiting the Sam Bell Fellows Program. During the event, he sat down for a conversation with publishing veteran Christina Gordovic to talk about his personal journey and his culinary career. So I, um, I'm Christina Gurdovich, and I met some of you last night, and some people were like, wait, you're interviewing Marcus? Why? How? Are you a professional interviewer? <laughs> I'm not, but I would like to be if anyone has that possibility for me. Um, so how I got here is I was a publisher of Food & Wine for a very, very long time. And then I did some consulting, and now I'm working for a food startup where I'm coincidentally working with Marcus. But through my work at Food Wine, I got to know Sam and Mary Celeste. And like anybody that gets to know um, the Bell family and Blackberry Farm, we became obsessed. Uh, we came here on vacation. I hosted a couple of other weekends. Um, Mary Celeste called me one day and asked me if I would host a house party at Blackberry Mountain when they were opening. You can imagine I felt like I won the lottery. So um, when they called and asked if I would interview Marcus again, I didn't know when. I was like, yes, yes, I can be there. So, so that's so that's why how I got here. I have known Marcus. I don't, we don't really like to say how long because it's so we ridiculous. Can say it, but, okay. um, I guess twenty-five years. Right? Um, that's my husband. We um, are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, Phil, go, go like this. Uh, we're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary next month, and we had our rehearsal dinner at Aquavit in 1996. So I feel like that's an important, that's yeah. a fun fact, right? Okay, enough about me. Who cares? You didn't come for me. So, um, Marcus, has anybody here been to the Red Rooster? Oh, great. Okay. Does anybody watch Chopped? Okay, that's what I figured. I figured there were going to be a lot of TV fans here. So I feel like I don't really need to give an introduction, but just in case there are some people that don't know, and the introduction of Marcus is so insanely impressive, I'm going to do it. Um, youngest person, to, and I have to read it because there's so many things here. It's not that I don't know these things. <clears throat> youngest person to ever receive a three-star review from the New York Times. He was 24, right? So it's impressive to get a three-star review, period, but to be 24 is sort of unheard of. He's won multiple James Beard Foundation awards, including Best Chef New York City. He executed the Obama administration's first state dinner. That might be my favorite. Is that your favorite? <laughs> he, was crowned, he was crowned champion of Top Chef Masters, won $115,000, which he donated to UNICEF. Uh, he won Chopped All-Stars. He was the winning mentor on ABC's The Taste. He also won a James Beard Foundation Award for Outstanding Personality for his TV series titled No Passport Required. He's the host of a podcast called The Moment, This Moment. Um, he's the executive chef in residence of BuzzFeed Tasty's Talent Program. He's the co-chair of um, CCAP, which focuses on underserved youths. He co-produces the annual week-long festival Harlem Eat Up. He's the recipient of the 2019 
Vilsack Foundation Prize in Culinary Arts awarded to immigrants who've made long-lasting contributions to American society. And he's the author of multiple books, New York Times bestselling memoir, Yes Chef, which the reason I'm carrying this around with me is I reread it on the way here, um, which I highly recommend for everybody. Uh, the Red Rooster Cookbook, The Story of Food and Hustle in Harlem, his newest book, The Rise. Whew, that's a lot, right? You yes. must be exhausted. Yes. Um, Okay, so you probably know that Marcus is an Ethiopian Swede. I wanna, um, there's so much to talk about today, to talk about your journey, but for those who don't know, let's explain how you got from Ethiopia to Sweden. Sure. Well, that was very impressive, Christina, very good. Um, I first wanted to say thank you to the whole, the entire Bell family to for inviting me and Tristan and James and the entire staff here at BlackBerry that made us feel so special and welcome during these very difficult times. To be in hospitality during, we're still in COVID, during the pandemic is very difficult. So I just want to say a big thank you to Mary Celeste, but also the entire team that made this possible. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm might be the only Swedeopian that you know, but I'm gonna make it count. Yeah, I was, born, I was born in Ethiopia in a tiny village outside the capital, two hours outside the capital. It's, I was born in a hut, and we, before the pandemic, we went back as a family every year. Uh, it's, I get a lot of energy and passion and don't really, you, you realize how incredible the world is when you can see that place that I was born and the fact that I can be here with you guys today, there's leaps and bounds of, of, of differences in that. Me and my sister and my mom, we have tuberculosis and, and she was strong enough to walk us into the capital, which was, um, you know, must have taken days. And eventually uh, she passed away and we got adopted. And um, from, um, that's how I went from being Kasahun Sigai to becoming Marcus Samuelson and that's how I, went from living in one of the warmest countries in the world to one of the coldest countries. <laughs> and uh, that's how I changed from growing up with Barbara and Shiro to Herring. And you're gonna have both of those things tonight, so it'll be fun. Okay, perfect. So tell us um, about uh, growing up in Sweden, sure. what you were eating, who was cooking, what your sort of first food yeah. memories are. What well, I mean, my, first of all, when you're adopted, you, I was adopted into a family that was really loved. I had both my parents, I had my grandparents, my sisters, and my uncles and cousins. So I felt, you know, the Samson tribe, was, we, were, we were extremely diverse and looked very odd and different, but we were um, always together, whether I was with my parents or grandparents and so on, right? And at my, my parents' house, my mom wanted to be a little bit more modern mom, uh, so she was busy and her cooking was not that great. So we used to do double dinners, which meant like you ate a little bit with mom and dad and then you just ran to the bike and biked over to grandma's house and that's when dinner started. And did your mom know you were doing that? She was like, we were out of the house, less for her to do, like whatever. And then maybe grandma called, but like, and when you rolled up to grandma's house, to Helga's house, it was very different, right? It's like 18 steps to get up to the house. You know, you drop your bike, you run up, and you come in, 
and the pace was just slowed down. It was my, to the left was my grandfather, very often screaming at the radio, because he was listening to the radio, and there was always something going on that he was upset about. And then as you just walked further straight, you come into this kitchen where the first thing that hit you was always this incredible aroma. There was always something, a bread just being baked, some type of stock in the back. There was always either mushroom season or chanterelles on the tables, lingonberries to be cleaned, apple jam to be made, meatballs to be rolled. I mean, my grandma, she was busy. Was, is Helga your mom's mom or your yes, dad's mom? Yes, my mother's mom. But didn't really pass down any of that, huh? No, I think it was more, my, my grandmother, she was a domestic, you know, but by the time she came, we came to Sweden, she was uh, retired already, so she had all those years of cooking, and also she came out of a time where Sweden was really poor, right? So like understanding, understanding Sweden as a poor country is like foreign to a lot of people, yeah, but to imagine. her generation it was, and, but the cooking skills that she had uh, through living in, with those families, she passed on to us. And so when you um, would go to the house and all that's happening, are you and your sisters just going and eating, or are you actually helping and cooking? Oh no, you helped, you helped out. It was like, if you were there, you worked. There was not, there was no, I never remember playing at my grandparents' house. That was not what you were there. You were like, go and pick apples, go, the plums fell down, uh, run down and get this to your neighbor. There was always something around food that you had to do, which was fun. It was like action. And so it's all Swedish food. Is anybody talking about Ethiopia or Ethiopian food, or are they, are they bringing that culture to you in any way? Yeah, my mom tried to do it like a couple of times a year. There was like these Ethiopian events with other adopted parents, and they all looked the same, right? There was this very often this lady that had her one or two Ethiopian kids and the kids did not want to go and they were in the corner like this and there was Ethiopian food in the middle and basically the moms ate the Ethiopian food and there was Ethiopian music playing and then all kids, I mean you're just a kid and you just want to be fit in and be a normal kid, whatever that, you know, whatever that is. And, um, but eventually as we got older, we, you know, my mom dragged us to these events and when you, by the time you're 12, 13, you now met other Ethiopian right. kids, and so you, you stay in contact. So she did, I mean, Gothenburg is the second largest city in, in Sweden. It's not a big city at all. It's like blue collars where Volvo comes from, where Saab comes from, it's a blue collar city. So the community of Ethiopian or other, a lot of foreigners were more in Stockholm. And that was as far as going to London. You know, right. Why would you go to Stockholm? You might as well go to London or Paris, something like that. And what, um, okay, so obviously the cooking, let's talk about, because you went to cooking school pretty young, yeah. you identified that maybe this was going to be your calling, which was really different than maybe what your father was thinking for yeah. you. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, on my dad's side, they were all fishermen, and the day school was out. When you were a kid, my parents, my mom, and my dad drove us up to the fishing village, so we grew up from June to August in a fishing village where my father's family have strong sort of, they used to own a small bed and breakfast, they own a fishing boat there. And so my father really grew up in this blue collar fishing village. And when you go there in the summertime, 
just as much clear was that you helped your grandmother in cooking. Here, it was all about seafood. So it, it gave me skills, like my summer jobs were selling fish, smoking fish, <laughs> uh, preserving fish, it was, you know, taking care of the boat. So being 14, 15, 16, I had cooking skills from both sides that I thought everybody knew. And did you, at that point, did you ever think that you were going to go into the family business, be a fisherman, and go that direction? No. Not at all. It scared me, the fishing place. And uh, what my parents did, which was fascinating, uh, it's something I'm really grateful for, is that both my parents came from very poor backgrounds. And watching my father uh, through education and university go from being a professor to eventually have his own company to be, become a geologist and go to his office to on the top floor in the middle of Gothenburg, that cultural journey and that generational uh, from working class to upper middle class was something that was talked about a lot in the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pure poverty of fishing, fishing village right. was scary to me. And so, um, okay, so then talk about, so you, you decide to go to cooking school. Mm -hmm. What do your parents say? Well, they didn't know anything about cooking uh, in terms of a profession. My dad was just like, if you're gonna do it, you have to pursue it like you get a master in something. And you know, one of the, you, I think like having two white parents raising three black kids, because my older sister is also adopted, but you know, it gave us clarity in a, in a very different way. And we talked about race in, within the house mm -hmm. and outside the house. And it was not something that ever was not talked about in terms of how when we leave this house, how the world would perceive us right. as kids. And my mom was very protective of that, and my father had more like a strategic view on that, right? So he was more like, even with our names, he's like, you're gonna have international names because the chances of you guys living in Sweden is very low. So he was thinking 30 years out, right? He had, we had English weeks at home, which like when you're eight and nine and in Sweden, you don't wanna talk, you don't wanna speak English. You wanna speak Swedish like everybody else. <laughs> he's like, no, you need to speak English better than everybody. Wow. And it was like weird when you have breakfast and your sister that you just fought with, he's like, pass me the milk and you have to say it in English. <laughs> it's, it creates a lot of difference. I mean, he did, so he really set you up. He set yeah. you up for success. Yeah. Maybe not this much success. He didn't anticipate this, but. But he was very strategic about things. So he's like, okay, you have to, you have to. And I think that that was something that's very clear to me. Like you, you, you have to, you have to win the scholarship. There's like no reward of being number two. And so, um, okay, so you go into it knowing like you can't just be a chef yeah. or a cook. You need to be like yes. the chef. Um, can you talk about all the different places like you stage and apprentice? Because I think the list of countries that you cooked in is pretty impressive. Yes. Um, well, I always wanted to go to three-star Michelin restaurant in France. To work at a place like this, but in France, was always to go. And my dad's like, well, you don't speak French, and you don't have that much cooking experience. So he's like, we're going to put France last out of all these stages. And it's like, in six years, you're going to go to France. And so that was worked on with my mom and my dad in two different ways. We had to go to the local library 
find a Michelin guide because there was only one in Gothenburg. <laughs> Write down, not two-star restaurant, the three-star mm -hmm. restaurants. Send a letter with our French neighbor to these restaurants and you're getting used to getting a lot of notes. So we got notes every year. But at the meantime, at the same time, there was a parallel movement. I got a stash to Japan when I was 18 years old, living with a Japanese family, learning about, you know, a completely different world, but also learning how to navigate with not speaking the language. At 19, I moved to Switzerland, and Eric is very happy that we have that Swiss connection. And I worked in I mean, I heard as of like the other day, you're like an ambassador to Switzerland now. Yeah, no. Swiss wine, Swiss cheese. Yes, yes, yes. So like learning in Switzerland, like similar, similar to this, right? You start in the garden, you, you learn German and you learn French. And at the same time, every four months, you move stations, for example. So that was like, my parents loved that place for me because it gave me structure and mm -hmm. discipline and you know, getting yelled by Heinz and, and Franz every day was, my parents thought that was great. <laughs> me, not so much, but I learned a ton. Eventually I go to Austria to learn pastries and eventually I get to France, which was like, you know, for, for not making one dollar, right. I've never felt as rich in my life <laughs> as having And been. how many, the, the strategy, the plan was a six year plan to get to France. How many yes. years did it take you to get to France? I was 18, so maybe in four. Okay, so you're ahead of schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, um, and then, is that when you go to New York? You know, the, the, again, in France, I think a crystallized experience really crystallized for me. And I would say that the blessings of being black crystallizes experiences for you faster. It just speeds up the process faster. I'm, I'm in France, chef says to me, go home for three months, come back, we've got a job for you another three-star Michelin place in this. And I said, I can't, I'm 23. I was like, I, I can't. He's like, what do you mean you can't? I, uh, I gotta pursue, I gotta go and start figuring out my own restaurant. I know it's gonna take me time, but like, it's like, you can't. And he just says to me, very simple, do you know, he said, you have to lower your ambition. And I said, well, I can't lower my ambition. Like, it's not impossible. It's That's impossible. bad advice. No, but he, he, I think he was very, sort of straight shooter, looking at the world as he knew it, right? He's like, do you know any black person that has a restaurant? I said, no. I said, do you know anyone in France or in Europe that, uh, that is black that has a restaurant of this capacity? I said, no. I said, that's your answer, right? And I called my dad and he's like, just come back home, we'll figure it out. So I jumped on the train a week later, 40 hour train ride, Gives you a lot of time to, <laughs> to think about what you're gonna do. And then when I got home, my dad was like, all right, here it is. Do you know anyone in New York City? And I said, actually I do. There's a Swedish restaurant in New York and I know one of them. Susan, one of the number two here in the kitchen. And it's Peter, and he's like, well call him because I think it can work out in New York for you. And I said, why? He said, they just had a black mayor and if they, we're open enough to have a black mayor. One day they will support a black-owned restaurant. Mm -hmm. I don't know when, I don't know how, but you need to go to New York City. Called my friend. My friend's like, do you want to work here? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you just came from France. No one goes from France to New York. He's like, but I want in, I want in. He's like, all right. And two months later, I flew over to New York, uh, started Aquavit, and a whole other journey began.
Amazing. So, um, okay. So I'm. I, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about Aquabee, but I'm sort of excited to get to the sure. to get to the Red Rooster, the Rise, all that stuff. So tell us about like your rise at Aquabee and how you got to three stars at the age of 24. Well, at that point, I mean, I, when you've done something for a long time, you know, even if you're a kid, it's like you're an athlete in a way, right? You train for something. So I felt that New York and doing high level of cooking was something that I've done and it wasn't that difficult actually, it wasn't that challenging. And I think that New York was, there was so much variety of food that I've never seen anywhere else before, mm -hmm. right? You could have the best of French food, but you could also have lemongrass, galanga, kefir lime leaves, so the world was really, and people were curious. So I thought that this was a great stage. Um, and the other part of that was just, you had to work a lot, which I'd done anyway, so it's no different. And the difference between New York and France was that I actually got paid, which <laughs> I've not, <laughs> not gotten in a long time. So this was like, great. Uh, so it was just falling in love with the city and falling in love with um, being in New York. Those things just parallel. And you're in the environment you feel comfortable with, and you train for something, everything else sort of comes easy, I felt. What, um, so were you at Aquabee for 10 years? Yeah, about 13 years, yeah. And so when during the Aquabee years, because everything's going mm. great, right? You're winning awards, yeah. people start to know your name, like you're, you're, you're definitely, you're accepted into the celebrity chef community. When do you say, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to do something completely different? Because the Red Rooster really couldn't be more different yeah. than Aquabee. Yeah, well, I think there's a, a, a bunch of experiences that happens. I think that I go from being like a young prodigy boy to a man, right? In my in my twenties, going into my early thirties, right? That's in 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 the two thousands. I'm like transforming, and also ask, but also the world is transforming. Like, if you want to get a review in New York at that time, it was. New York Magazine maybe came once every other year. New York Times maybe came every four year, if you're lucky. And Sagats. Well, internet and food truly didn't meet until like the early 2000, maybe 2001, 2002. And I always felt like whatever that is, whatever is happening, we got to be on that train. And Aquavit was a great place for me to understand partnership. That if you're a partner, you can't take all the decisions. And when you're extremely ambitious and you, 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 you have a point of view that is so clear in your head, that becomes frustrating. And how do you, how do you now compromise? And my partner always felt like, this internet thing and food's gonna go away. And I was like, it's not gonna be more, less of that, it's gonna be more of that. And maybe because we were generationally different ages too, so like maybe it was easier for me to just understand that this is happening, you know? And so that's going to go away. Yeah. That reminds me, we, um, Phil, there's the story. We, we, I've worked at an advertising agency, and there were, no, I guess it was when I was at Food and Wine, and we had um, someone, an outside consultant that we worked with, and it was, I mean, this was the early to mid 90s, and, you know, the internet was just being introduced, and it was, you know, WW, everything was WWW. Yeah. Yeah. And he called the WWW the worldwide waste of time. And he was like, that's going to go away. And yeah. Yeah. Yes. So he, Hawkins should have been There was many like yeah. that. But you know, and I also felt there was two other major things that happened, like 9-11 happened, and I'll 
cooked. I mean, the fact that we're heading into the 20th anniversary of that in two weeks. And I cooked in the towers the weekend before. And so I knew people there, I knew staff there. And it really gave me this whole questioning of what are you doing? Why are you only cooking for the 1% of the 1%? And it just started, you, you question like everything. As being every New Yorker that was in the city, see you and Phil, you really, there's not a lot of times I question why I'm in New York City. Mm -hmm. That was one of them. I would say yes, the pandemic now, sure. yeah. and that's, that's, exactly right. that's, that's the two times. It's very accurate. Yeah, so I started to think more about other things that was just like, well, if you're gonna stay here, do something meaningful. And the other thing was, it was also around the time when I met my birth father, and I started to think about how come I'm the only one in the room, the only black person in the room, at all these cooking events. Mm -hmm. And that was from the whole, from the purveyor side, to the guest, to very often, the kitchen, but not the dish pit. That was the only place. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, if you have this platform, if you have, if you are one of one, you have this incredible, you, you're working from New York City, now figure out how to utilize that in a better way. Did you, um, did you move to, I feel like I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Did you move to Harlem first and then come up with the idea for Red Rooster, or was yes. it vice versa? No, I mean, I moved to Harlem, and then it was six years between studying, and I'm, I mean, I was working, but I was really studying how did this community work, right? Right. And very often what happens, so often in black culture is, things are underground and eventually becomes pop culture, right? Whether that's jazz to hip hop, right? Food too. The, what happens up in a blog, like say downtown or in Brooklyn, the best cornbread doesn't end up in a blog in Harlem. It stays in that church. Mm -hmm. The best fried chicken doesn't, is only talked about on the, the five blocks radio. So you have to go to it. So it's, everything is bespoke and everything is there, but if you don't know about it, you're never gonna find out. Yeah. So it's a different level of mystique to things. But because I feel like, um, tell me if this is accurate, like when you opened the Red Rooster, you weren't just a chef opening a restaurant in Harlem. You were making a much bigger statement and you decided, and I don't know what the order, the chronology of it is, like you were helping Harlem as a neighborhood. Well, I don't think I would, I, I think I've gotten much more from Harlem than I've given to Harlem. And you know, my wife and I and our son, we live in this incredible community where we've been welcomed in yep. and by our neighbors. And if my son is running around on the block, I know I have uncles and aunties that would grab him and, and, and you know, correct him. And so I feel like I got, I'm, it's, a, it's an incredible community. Yep. But in terms of, you know, you think about the word restaurant, it means to restore your spirit and restore your community. So yes. It makes sense for us to have 120 employees that 100 of them came from Harlem, yep. right? Why should aspiration be outside the community when they, just like here, I'm sure that the commitment here is to raise the next generation of hospitality excellence within uh, the Tennessee, Knoxville, you know, this area, right? And that's why you can have Blackberry Farm and Mountain and, and you, you can grow right. that. Yeah, I, um, I had the, um, the privilege of having breakfast 
We didn't even have breakfast, we just had coffee. We sat on the street, I don't know, a couple months ago, a few weeks ago, and it's hard to have a meeting with Marcus because literally every single person that walks by is like, hey, hey, and you can't tell if like they know him, they just know who he is, but it was it was really, it had such a nice community feeling. It was, it was, it was fun, it was fun. Um, so do you feel like, you feel like you've done, oh, let's talk about Harlem Eat because that's another really big thing that you did for Harlem, or are doing, right, and continues. So tell everybody what that is. I mean, I, I feel like when you're lucky, I'm invited to all these great places like here, and every time I go to Food and Wine in Aspera, I come to a place like this, I, sit, I, I think about how can I bring this back to my community, and I think a lot of us do that. Like you, get, you, go, you get out, sent out to the world, and then you're inspired, and then you say like, Hey, how can I how can I share this with these amazing friends that I where I come from? And and after going to Aspen for so many years, I'm like, well, wait a minute, we can create our own. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started it, and it's been seven years now, and we have about fifteen thousand people come, and about a thousand people works for it. It's a full year endeavor, um, and we figure out how to do it even through the pandemic. So. Uh, and it creates jobs that stays in the community. The, the restaurant scene in Harlem is thriving. Through the pandemic, it was, it's been doing great. And I know that our festival is a major part of that because it's not just a week where it happens, as you know, it's the 10 months of promotion right. in Harlem as a place. That's when you put on festivals, you know this. It's marketing, it's narrative building, it's changing the uh, community. And to be part of that, it's been one of the biggest gifts of my life. So great. I want to. Um, I want to. We'll get back to the pandemic and some of the things you did in Red Rooster and different things. But let's um, let's talk about some of the fun stuff. When did Chopped start? When did you become a judge on Chopped? Maybe ten. Maybe two thousand ten. I think it's been ten so it's years. It's been a long time. It's yeah. been a long time. A lot yeah. of seasons. Those guys so are family. You All must, of right. So you must have some stories for people here about. Like, um, I don't know, just tell them some things about the other judges. Who's yeah. the best judge? Who's the worst judge? I, See, this is what the people yeah. came for. I would say... It all means Yeah, I would say the most natural judge is Alex, right? Because her mom just passed away last year. She's one of the most incredible food writers. She wrote to New York Times forever. And it was an editor. So the way Alex approached judging is really like just dinner table at home with her mm -hmm. mom and dad. So I always feel the way she, she, she's like it's incredible, not just how she views the food, her pastas are incredible, and the, the, the look, the fear she gets to the <laughs> contestants is incredible. I just love judging with Alex. Um, Jeffrey is the prettiest by far, <laughs> by far. <laughs> Uh, uh, and we should always let him believe that he is. He just stays that way. Uh, we all miss Aaron, because Aaron, no one makes you laugh like Aaron, like he has the warmest hugs and the, the best stories. You know, I'm very close to those guys. God and I have known each other for a very long time. We came up in the city at the same time. And so it's, it's like a family. It's really a family. And to make the show, it's just like a restaurant. It takes 150 people, 180 people. And uh, we fight like a family, fight, you know, it, it, it's real, right? And I think one of the reasons why that show is so successful, because 
we have no clue what's going to be in this basket. That basket has its own producer. <laughs> and that producer is, we're not even allowed to talk to that person. And they never, under all of these years, yeah. changed that. And I think that is such a powerful thing. Yeah, because, that's very cool. Yeah. That's a cool detail. Right? I mean, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, is it, is it, do you think you've evolved as a judge over the years? Have you become a better judge? Yeah, I mean, you understand what America in this pop culture moment, like shows like Chopped and Top Chef, have really democratized food in a way that I always wanted, but didn't have the, I had so much of a narrow sort of food come from this one place, and there's only a correct way to do it. But what it's done, it's opened up this incredible way of that anyone can be part of this. Mm -hmm. and, and once more people are part of it, you're gonna see that delicious does not have to be done one way. And you can be 11 and come up with the best dish, or you can be 91 and come up with the best dish. And everybody in between are welcome to the party. Is it hard to tell the people that they've failed, or that it's not good, or it doesn't taste good, or they've done well, something I, wrong? I always try to feel like, for me, it's not win or losing that moment. For me, it's like, you're going to learn something. My job is to teach you something. So when you leave, because only one can win, right? When you leave this room, you're going to feel like you've been mentored, and you can take that stuff. Right. and go back to your day job, kitchen, whatever it is, and feel good about yourself and build. And hopefully one day come back. So it's not, you know, so I try to judge it from that point of view. Um, so Tristan, who's not here, because I think he's, um, he's cooking for yeah. tonight, he's prepping for you. Um, did, is that how you met him? Did you meet him through Chopped? Uh, I didn't meet him through Chopped, but like through actually another cooking competition with Anthony Bourdain, so. Tristan is one of the sous chefs that's cooking with Marcus tonight in Israel all weekend. He, did he win a job? He won a job, right? He won. He won a bunch of shops, probably. Um, and so I think maybe that was how you got to know each other. Okay, so I'm going to make sure that we keep time so you can ask your other questions about chopped. But let's talk about, um, so the pandemic hits. Some people close their restaurants and go home and give up. Some people are trying to do different things. What did you do with the Red Rooster? Well, I think I thought about all of those things. I think that it's important to acknowledge that nothing was linear you know we had i had crazy doubts i was super upset angry i asked myself it took 25 years for me to build this up and it took 10 days to break down what was wrong in my model and i was bitter and upset that was all of those emotions so it wasn't just gee this is what we're doing but pretty early and i even back up a week before two weeks before that at march we were all in Miami at South Beach Food and Wine, and, and Philip's partner, Sarah, with that's a dear friend of Blackberry family, but also us, said to me, you gotta come with me to this luncheon. Jose is gonna have a lunch about World Central Kitchen, and it's very important that you oh, yeah, show up. Yeah, I and I said, Sarah, I gotta go over here. It's like, she's like, no, you're coming with me. Stay there for 10 minutes, and then you can go. And I did that. And Jose was in this room where he was just talking about this thing is coming and World Central Kitchen is your organization and you guys need to help me on this. This is not my organization. All you guys chefs here. Right, so you're exactly, you're in a small room yeah. with other chefs that are there for the Saturday yeah, like Food Festival. Danielle, John George, the top creme de la creme of right. chefs in the country. And Jose is like telling everybody, hey guys, I'm gonna need your help. Um, I don't think he said COVID, but maybe Corona, like whatever. He, he did not use the word pandemic because we didn't know that word then. He's like, this is coming and World Center Kitchen's gonna be there 
and you guys are spread all over the country and I need your help. So remember us and remember that we're here. And then I said, Sarah, I gotta go and I left. And on March 1st, second, that first week, what are we gonna do? March 9th, I called the and said, hey, that thing you were talking about, uh, we have no idea what we're gonna do. And then someone in this organization said, well, we know how to serve, we know about social distance, we have masks, which no one had at the time, we have gloves, we have all of these things, we can serve the community in a safe way. But we need restaurants to do it. Mm -hmm. I was like, let's sign us up. And we did that. So March 10th, 12th was our last service, we were closed for one or two days, and then we opened back up and served first, started to serve first responders and the community. Um, 300 portions a day, 400 portions a day, 800 portions a day, 1,500 portions a day eventually. And we ended up serving north of 250,000 meals over seven months. I mean, I feel like that needs applause. Yeah. <laughs> And the, and the line changed, the customers changed, and the great thing with these guests that we had that were first responders and hospitals and home insecure people, the dialogue with them and our food was the same as any VIP customer. They're like, hey, we like the chicken stew better than, than last night. How come we got apple? Could we already had a fresh fruit in? How come we didn't get like, any apple this time? And the same dialogue starts to happen. And that is somewhere around that third week, I woke up, I felt like, wow, I now have a place to go to that matters, I need to be there. I'm now like talking to Phil and purveyors and fixing things and understand that this is a different way of leading and being a tribe leader essentially. And that gave me clarity that it was a space and a place and Red Roosters 2020 was probably the most important year we've ever done. Mm -hmm. Well, while not being open, we were open. So it, it, helped, it, it helped in many ways too. The other thing that also helped was, I would say, the independent restaurant coalition that was created during the same time because it became a network that you could log into and talk to other chefs and restaurateurs and you were not alone with your struggles. Other places, we're going through similar stuff. And then, how did you solve it? So that identity of hospitality, part of this larger group and network, I felt it was the most important lesson out of all of this. It's amazing, it's very impressive. And so also, in the midst of all this, you're doing a million things, you finished the book, The Rise, which is really important. Can you talk about what the idea was, how you pitched the idea, um, like what the what the goal of it is because it's different it's definitely different than any other cookbook the rice cookbook really looks at um, african americans contribution to american food right uh, there's four major cuisines in america that all uh, is part and come out of african american experience like you think about barbecue you think about in New Orleans, you really have two cuisines, right? You have Creole cooking, and you think about low country in the, in the Carolinas, 
And um, when we think about southern food and, and, and soul food, these are cuisines that the world, if, you, if you're in Germany and you see a, a restaurant from New Orleans there, you, you think about that contribution. And, and who was the hero that made that? How come they're not written into history? Why is it so difficult to find them? So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect was to who is presently doing something incredible, so let's locate the best current African-American chefs in the country. And then what does the future look at? So you have a, a book that if you travel, you can go to these chefs' restaurants, pop up across the country. If you want to support, if you have a company or your family wants to support uh, black-owned restaurants, here's the way to do that. So, and also if you're a young black chef coming up, you're like, here are people I can aspire to that look like me, they're a similar narrative. And I'm explaining that black cooking is not monolithic, right? right? I'm an American, I'm African and American. Very different narrative than if my parents were born in South Carolina and moved through the migration to New York City, right? right? So just explaining the complexity, just like European culture is diverse and complex, you would never think about someone from Poland and Portugal. Right, and call it European food. And call it European food. Those are like the Portuguese is very different and the Polish is very different with strong, strong heritage. And when it comes to someone from Haiti that lives in Miami versus someone that grew up in New Orleans, very different food. So how do we unpack it, how do we present it, and how do we introduce it? Yeah, the book is great because it does, it has all these different chefs, all these different recipes. It's, it's an easier way to understand yes. it because once you start to think about it, it's, it's much more complicated than yes. any of us know. And I think, I can't remember if this is, you talk about this in the book or you and I talked about this, but you um, made the analogy of um, black food to black music. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Because that helped me a lot yeah. understand me too. Uh, the, the, like, how big a thing we're talking yeah. about. I mean, I think that African-American music has done an excellent job of, of, of broadcasting it out to the world. And like, if you want to listen to jazz, or if you want to listen to R&B, or if you want to listen to hip hop, or if you want to listen to rock and roll, and you can just go like, what era? You know sort of where you are. It's the same thing with food. I mean, we, it, it simplifies and helps us understand, okay, this is how a, let's say, you know, Mashama Bailey cooks. That's different than Nina Compton in New Orleans that comes from St. Lucia versus how Nisha Arrington in LA cooks that has a Korean that is both Asian American and African American. So we need sort of like introductions in culture that is different than our own. All of us, whatever, if you would introduce me to something I don't know anything about, I would like to open the the first door, the easiest door that gets me into this, I want to dive in. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to feel safe in that space. I want to be able to ask hard questions that doesn't make me uh, feel like a racist. I'm not a racist because I'm asking questions that I don't know about. So I want to create spaces that everyone can come to and say like, hey, this might be a stupid question. I just don't know, but I'm curious, right? And restaurants and food is this incredible space where you should feel safe to come to. You should feel safe to be curious. You can even make a mistake that doesn't make you a bad person. So I think this is really important that we create opportunities for everyone to come to and 
eat delicious food and learn about it and and um, yeah, have fun with it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So this is um, going to seem like a totally random question, but you know, this morning when I was preparing for this, because I like to wait until the very last minute, I um, googled Marcus Samuelson. Because I thought, I don't know, what if, is there something out there that I don't know about that we haven't talked about? And like literally the second thing that comes up is, why does Marcus Anderson always wear a hat? <laughs> and I thought to myself, did you know this? So, How would I know that? I don't know. So I thought to myself, does he? And I thought, is he going to wear a hat today? And I said to myself, if you wear a hat, I'm going to ask the question. And so here you are in a hat, and I'll tell you what the internet says, or wait, oh. you tell me first, and then I'll tell you what the internet But if the says. internet says it, it is true, knows. everyone yeah. knows that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, I will tell you down the list, it says, where does Marcus get his hats, which I didn't actually check that out, we'll have to look into that later. So Marcus, why are you always wear hats? I've done it since I was a kid, you know. I think, I think actually it comes from a like, it comes, it goes back to growing, growing up in Sweden. Like when we went to the, when we went out, like my mom with my sisters, we went to store. You know, like it was, it became traffic jam. Like people wanted to touch our hair, and I just remember my mom's like, don't touch my kid's hair. I'm like, this issue. Everywhere we went, and they wanted to touch my sister's hair. And my mom's like, one day, like, okay, you will get you, like, put hats on. Like, this is not, we're going, in, we're going for milk. Right. That's it. Right. That's it. It's, you know, I don't know, and we just became something, yeah, we just wore hats, but okay, I never... You should call the internet and tell them that. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> they say um, that you're, it's a sign, and it's a unifying symbol. Oh, it's wow. a unifying symbol. That's yeah. amazing. Right? My mom, rest her, her soul, like, she would love to hear that. But I think it was just that, it's like, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Eric, that feels like a perfect, um, a perfect ending. Yes. It's a great talk. Um, thank you. Thank you. Good job. Thank you so much. Everyone, you should come back on the rise. You should read Yes Chef. Um, you should go to the Red Rooster. You can order Street Bird on Gold Belly. Yeah. Right. That's your to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.